Last week we talked about um, timelines and about the power of our story to influence our faith. And we actually kind of use the illustration, the power to, to write down a timeline of your life. And in doing so, oftentimes you see places where, you know, God showed up in places of highs and lows. God showed up. And so uh, the story of Moses is not just important for what it meant to the people of Israel then, uh, though it is very instrumental. We're going to talk about that today. It also matters uh, about our life now. And Moses understood very well uh, after getting to the desert back with Israel, he understood more of his calling as being a person of instrument of hope in our world. And... um, Today, as we kind of open with this uh, sermon on Exodus 2, titled Death of a Plan, From Madness to Meaning, we're going to be preaching on from verse 11 to the end of chapter 2, and just kind of getting into chapter 3 of Exodus, which is kind of the burning bush and the calling, but much of what we'll focus on today is these desert places where Moses is on the run as a murderer and waits a very long time to see if God is done with him yet. And this idea of waiting in the midst of challenge uh, would resonate well with uh, somebody I'd like to use as an illustration today. Many of you know the story of Viktor Frankl. Um, Some of you do not. Viktor Frankl, uh, a psychiatrist, an author, survivor of World War II, uh, of the the death camps, uh, lived for over 90 years and had a great influence on many people. Viktor Frankl was born in 1907, and he knew this death of a plan narrative very well. Uh, March 26, 1907, he's born, uh, several children in the family living in Vienna. The family during World War I, 1914, so poor, they went to local farmers to beg for food. He knew desert places, just figuratively here, like they didn't have enough food to eat, and so his siblings would go door to door to just glean enough produce to, to survive. In 1930s, Frankel was brilliant, and he went into Vienna, and he studied, and he was chasing his dreams of psychiatry and of purpose and meaning. And even though he was a young man, he developed this program in his graduate studies of psychiatry on uh, prevention of suicide and was getting acclaim from throughout Europe. For, a, for somebody that wants to use their mind to do great things, this would be a time of promised land. He's doing it. From his rough upbringing of the desert places, he's in the promised land. And then, 1936, Hitler invades desert places. And then, in 1940, Frankel receives a visa to immigrate to America, but doesn't want to leave his family behind. And in 1941, he marries his sweetheart, Tilly. In the midst of the chaos of Europe, he finds love, promised land. In 1942, he and Tilly get pregnant, and the Nazi army force he and and Tilly to abort their child for their Jewish faith. Desert places. And they're deported to a Jewish ghetto and later to Auschwitz in cattle cars. And upon arriving, Frankel's 65-year-old mother was sent and killed immediately. And his 24-year-old wife would live but be deported. And so for the next several years in the desert place of Auschwitz and later Dachau, Frankel would fight for survival, both of his very life and of his mind and his spirit, wondering what would happen to Tilly, hoping above all hopes that God would spare her life. He understood that life doesn't turn out as planned, but it can still have profound meaning. We'll come back to his story because he authored a book called 
man's search for meaning. He understood the quest in desert places, in waiting places, in troubled places, the search for significance in our lives. And as we turn to the text this morning, as you turn to your Bibles or your Bible apps, we're going to study every verse of chapter 2. And it's funny because you will see a lot of sermons on uh, the beginning of Exodus 2. We love Moses in a basket sent down the river. And a lot of sermons on Exodus 3 because we love burning bushes and we love revelation and we love calling and we love people in lost lands getting this new hope. And we say, I want, a, I want a story like that. God, I want you to show up in a massive way. Be a burning bush to me. But this middle piece of the end of Exodus 2, oftentimes in the church, is a bit of a silent chapter. Because we don't know what to do with the Midian the desert places, the long waiting for redemption, the long spaces of expectancy and wondering, is God still going to show up? But today, as we study Moses' life and look at his, his anger and his shame and his sin and his desire to cover it up and his running away to Midian and the fact that God, you know how the story ends, that God goes and finds him in Midian and says, I'm not done with you yet. We have a profound message for each and every one of us. And the message is this, this is our big idea this morning, that seeing ourselves as called by God to be instruments of hope and purpose and meaning in the lives of others, that we might be Moses a little bit, that we might be so full of the Spirit that we become a person of hope in this world, helping other people understand that God's not done with them yet. Understanding that this is our calling that we get to learn today that when we fail and when we wait for next steps, we have the opportunity to have our faith strengthened. And though all of us long for, you know, existence of, of sunny days and no loss and no grief and no unemployment and no loneliness and no marital struggles and no aging parents and, you know, you fill in the blanks. So this is the reality of our lives. And so when we learn as God's people that we can wait and we can have our faith strengthened in these desert places, we will be full of God's purpose and meaning in our life. Let's begin at the beginning of your outline, the death of a vision of trying harder. There's two settings here in verse 11 to the end of chapter 2. This begins where we'll study today, Exodus 2, verses 11 and 12. And the setting here is in Egypt. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brothers and looked on their labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. We can pause there. Some of you weren't here last week. In fact, many of you weren't here last week and that's okay. We love you. But uh, as we travel during the summer, it's wonderful to use the Bethany app and you can hear messages when you miss. You can be following along. Last week we preached on Exodus 1 and the first 10 verses of Exodus 2 and we looked at the fact that Moses had this unique upbringing. He was Hebrew. He was Jewish. He was from the family of Levi that later would be used as God's priestly people and so he had this Hebraic upbringing but because of Pharaoh's order of murder, he was put into the river, sent down the river. Pharaoh's daughter ignores the death edict and spares the baby's life. The baby's given back to Moses' own mother to be the, the nursemaid, and God provides. God, though Moses was sent down the river, though there's situations we face as God's people that we're not sure exactly how it happens and places that just feel like death and destruction and nothing good can ever come out of it, God provides. And he provided very well for Moses. 
And so Moses has this incredible upbringing where though he's Hebrew by birth and he spends probably the first year or two of his life when he's weaned, he's taken into Pharaoh's household. He's adopted. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, becomes his stepdad. Like that's remarkable. And this would feel like to a man like Moses, he would feel like a man between two cultures. He, he was given up by this family. He's not really part of his brother and people. And he's, you know, in, in Pharaoh's household, I'm sure there's many times he feels like he's not part of these people. What we talked about last week is, is our experiences don't disqualify us. And there's so many places in our journey that we're not sure what God's going to do with this, but we can trust that God uses even the weak parts of our story, the parts that don't feel perfectly qualified to do great things. And so now Moses is a man, he's come of age, he's identified with his brothers, the people of, of, the, of the Hebrew people that are slaves in Egypt, and he sees an Egyptian soldier probably beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers, verse 12, the beginning part, so he looked this way and he looked that way, and when he saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian. He killed a man with his own hands. Now, there's so much to do with this verse. He sees injustice. He sees dissonance with the way in which life should be lived. But his instincts are all wrong here. And his actions are all wrong. Instead of trying to intercede for the man's life, instead of going to Pharaoh and trying to intercede, he acts out of his own anger. He acts in a way of perpetual violence. And the key verse here, as you've got your Bibles open, is that he looks this way and that in chapter 12. When we're looking this way and that way, it means that we know our actions aren't consistent with our beliefs. And we want to be people that are taking that journey from the stuff that we think about to the stuff that we do. And so we'll often say it's the 18 inches from our head to our heart that's the longest distance for a human to travel. And so Moses is, you know, he's thinking about these things and stuff, but he looks this way and that way because he has, he has a moment where he can, he can go back on his convictions to strike this man, and he probably could do something more healthy. Friends, there is a moment that God gives you between your instinct and your action. I heard a sermon in college one time that stayed with me forever, that it was a sermon on lust. And, and that when we lust, we're choosing actions that are actually like putting, you know, honey on our heart is the way the pastor said it. I'll never forget it. So you're inviting the enemy to just prey on you. It's like you're putting honey on your heart. And he said, there's a moment between action and reaction where we are choosing the way that we respond. You have a moment. And so as people of God trying to become more fully aligned with God's ways, we're trying to pay attention to that instinct to sin. And the response, it says, I have a choice here. I don't need to act in violence. I don't need to scream at my child. I don't need to look uh, in the eyes of the flesh at somebody. I don't need to, you know, you, you fill in the blanks. But may we be people taking that journey, trying to not be people looking left and looking right because the Lord through the Spirit it's in us is trying to convict us. Don't do that. Not because he's going to love us any less, but because of what we're going to see here, the, the nature of sin in Moses' life to just send him into desert places. And the Spirit is telling us, if your behavior is causing you to look left and look right, it's time to look into your heart and confess and open yourself up and say, I don't want to live like that anymore. And so continuing on, verse 12, part B, he strikes down the Egyptian and he actually hids 
He hides the body in the sand. He hid him in the sand. It's amazing. He, 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 he takes this body and he's trying to cover it up. As if a pile of sand in the desert of Egypt is going to somehow make the mistake go away. We've been in those places, right? We've been there. Covering up with sand, we make a mistake. Covering up with you know, denial, that didn't really just happen. Covering up with silence, because I don't really want to talk about what just happened. Covering up. And the Spirit of God is never about covering it up. The Spirit of God is never just saying, we're just going to close this chapter for a while. Because as I heard a pastor say in this last week, it's very profound, stay with me. He said, what's not healed is passed down. And so in our families, if we're not doing the work of reconciliation, if we're not dealing with the stuff that we're participating in, if we're not having those conversations, we're going to have those conversations because if we don't deal with it, we're just covering it with sand. And the body does not go away. The bones speak. And every one of us has a whole trail of, of bodies in the sand, but it's people of God we're meant to be uncovering things, you know, confessing our sin that there will be light and freedom, talking about that which isn't going well, talking about that which is outside of the way I want to live. We're going to talk about it. Because if we don't talk about it, we're going to end up just covering it over, and it never works. And so continuing on, Moses thinks this body's been covered up. He thinks he looked left and right. He thinks he's kind of got his get out of jail card. And the next day, he goes out and two Hebrews are fighting. He tries to intervene. And they say to him, verse 14, uh, this guy, he's trying to break up the fight. Well, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid. And then Moses ran it's amazing when we don't deal with our sin in honest dialogue and confession. But then when it gets exposed, we just want to get out of town. And it's about as effective as covering it up with sin, if I can be that blunt. If you're in places where you're just running from past sins in relationship, past sins in behavior, past sins in you know, coldness of heart, past sins, whatever it is, where you're just, if you're just running to the next place, you're running away from the grace of God. And the text speaks very clearly through the life of Moses that we run, we just end up further from where God wants to speak to us. And the fruit of the bad decision in Moses' life is this, is this running, but it doesn't need to be the end of the story. Like that's the amazing thing with the scriptures. They tell over and over and over again about murderers and adulterers and really broken people that choose to not run anymore. Or choose to listen when God comes calling. I mean, to give you a foreshadowing, a little bit of Exodus 3, which we're doing this unique thing next week with all the pastors kind of coming together and speaking about it. But this amazing thing happens at the beginning of chapter 3. The, the bush burns, and Moses sees him. God has come and found, found him in a desert place. And the text says that when Moses did not look away, that God continued to reveal himself to him we need to pay attention to how god is speaking to us and when we're running or we're hiding or we're looking left or looking right we're not entering into the fullest measure of god's hope and his purpose in our life but it doesn't have to be the end of the story and to, as illustration for that i'm mindful of, of the story of chuck colson 
prison fellowship ministries, no matter what you think about his theology or his politics, none of that matters for the sake of our illustration today. Chuck Colson was one of the, one of the inner guys during the Watergate scandal. I mean, he was in the president's cabinet. He was in the White House. He was having those conversations with President Nixon. And long story short, he was the first of the Watergate scandal to go to jail. And in the 70s, he spent seven months in federal prison in Alabama, which is a desert place coming from the center of power of Washington, D.C. But in the midst of his brokenness, in the midst of his sin, in the midst of his shame, he meets Jesus Christ. And from the wreckage of that place, he starts this ministry. He's in prison, but he's starting to meet other prisoners and realizing, we got a place, we got to start speaking Jesus' name here. And they start prison fellowship ministries, and tens of thousands of lives have been changed. All because Colson, instead of running further and covering with sand more and looking left and looking right, he dealt with his sin and brokenness. And gave his heart over to Jesus Christ and said, now from this wreckage, God, rebuild my life. You know, he left the White House. He probably thought, you know, my life will never have significance again. And the truth is, his life had more power and prestige than he probably ever would have uh, had on his own. He made this comment later in life. He said, we must be the same person in public and in private. And only the Christian worldview gives us the basis for that kind of integrity integrity this man during watergate with all the nasty stuff he did but he had the integrity of christ which started to live in him and rewrote his story no more sand over bodies no more looking left and looking right a new beginning of telling the truth and loving others in christ's name and god did an amazing work it was the death of one plan in his life and the beginning of a new plan so let's take a turn to the second part of Exodus 2, that God grants new vision for his beloved people. God grants new vision for people in far places. God gives new vision for those that feel like their old life is dead and behind. So this is uh, verses 15 to 22. When Pharaoh hears of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. Moses' stepdad tries to kill him. And Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. And then the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. When they came to rule their father, they said, why have you come back so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And what is more, he even drew the water for us and watered the flock. A couple things really significant there. So Moses feels like he's on the run and feels like this halfway man between the Hebrew people and the Pharaoh's people. He still has enough royalty on him that these women see him as a, as a prince of Egypt, as a son of Egypt. And, and once again, there's some sort, we don't know a lot, but there's some sort of class war going on, something misogynistic. These shepherds are coming. The women are trying to draw water. We don't know if it was family lines. We don't know if it was male, female. But something is going on, another injustice. But this time, instead of acting in anger and violence, Moses is able to channel his desire for justice, and he acts in a just way. He helps the women water their flocks. He acts in a way to give life and not steal life. And so these girls are going back to their dad, and they're back sooner than normal. He's like, what's going on? They say, t- hey, well, there's, there's this guy, and he's Egyptian, and he just helped us. And verse 20, then the father-in-law said to the daughters, where is he then? And why is it that you have left the man behind? Invite him to have something to eat. 
And Moses was willing to dwell with the man, and he gave his daughter Zephora to Moses, and she gave birth to a son and named him Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So he finds himself in Midian. Pharaoh wants to kill him. And we have a map of, of the area. Midian, uh, we know from Genesis 25, was from Abraham's second wife. That she had these sons. One of the sons was Midian. And most of the, though there were some uh, Midianites living in Sinai, most scholars think that true Midian was on the far side of this other gulf. Like it's, it's at the far edge. For somebody coming from lower Egypt, it would be at the far edge of what they think would be possible to be living. It's like from being up here and thinking, of like Kent, Washington, right? Like, sorry if you're from Kent, but it's like, you know, it's like the far edge of, of King County, the far edge of where we ever think we can live. And so Moses finds himself, or he, he pursues a life on the run, and he goes to Midian. This is the, the desert place where he'll spend the next 40 years far from royalty, far from family, far from his, his Jewish people that understood Yahweh he was out here all alone but in this desert place God hadn't given up on him and God still had a purpose and a plan for his life and so he sits by the well which is a symbol of life and it's kind of the center of town in that time and he just trusts that God's going to do something and he's probably thirsty more than anything else so what does Midian mean like we don't you know we don't have this context in our life because all of the world is kind of accessible for us but what does Midian mean in our day and age today for, for Moses Midian would have been the far side of a place that would ever be livable out here so far from from the rest of society that that he's off here off the grid what does Midian in our life mean it means that oftentimes when we're at the far edge of where we think God can find us God finds us and reminds us his provision is real. And every situation is redeemable. We know through the New Testament, we know through Jesus Christ that every situation is redeemable. No matter who we are or what we've done, that God is not done with us. And, and he can do something with us there. But the other thing that's truly remarkable about Midian, if you think about Moses, the life story, so he's, he's sent down River Nile, he's protected, brought into the house of Pharaoh, Several years, or now he's a man, kill, kills another man, runs to Midian. He lives there 40 years. And God calls him at the beginning of chapter 3 into this life of purpose and meeting. And then he goes back to Egypt to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then through, you know, the beginning of Exodus, he leads people to freedom. And where do they end up? They go back through Midian. They go back through the Sinai Peninsula. And so though Moses never understood it, his 40 years living in the desert were preparing him for a life of leadership. He was learning how to draw water from, from different places and where to take shade when it was hot and how to care for, for animals out here in the middle of nowhere. Though he didn't understand him, his years of, of Midian living were actually preparing him for a life of fruitfulness. I know that you're like, well, what do I do with that? It, it, it's very applicable because we all will find ourselves in seasons where we feel far from God's best. Or maybe the plan we had for this relationship, this career, this season of life, it's different than I would have anticipated. And when we find ourselves in those desert lands, we can trust that even here, God might use for his glory in the future. How could he use this brokenness? How could he use this heartache? I can just tell you, he will. He does. He is. 
I mean, it often doesn't make sense, but when you start to do that timeline of your life, you can look back and just see, you know, I never would have chosen this hardship or this season, but God did something beautiful then. Talk to any grief survivor in the room and they'll tell you their stories. They'll show you their scars. And when you survive something that almost breaks your heart, you become stronger for it. And and so he finds himself in Midian not even knowing how God will protect him. But God provides for him and he's being prepared. And if you hear one thing today, this morning, I want you to hear this one point. It's the most important thing I'm going to say. So listen up. The life of faith, friends, there is no protection. It's all about preparation. And those of us that sign up for an easy journey or or God will always provide, I'll always get the job, I'll always be healthy, my family will always be healthy, everything will work out. It doesn't turn out that way. We're not always protected, but we can be always prepared. To worship God in the best of days and the worst of days. And some of you are in moments right now where you're in like a season of plenty. The sun is shining literally and figuratively. Enjoy it. Like may that prepare you to worship God well. Where you drink your wine with gladness like it says in Ecclesiastes. And you eat your food with a grateful heart. These are good days. So enjoy them. It's not like, hey man, Scott, you're kind of Debbie Downer. Like, why has it got to be about the desert? No, no, like in times of the promised land, enjoy it. Lift your glass high, look into the people. That, I mean, if that's your season of life right now, just enjoy it, give thanks to God, but may you be prepared to worship him more fully because of how good life is right now. And for others in the room that just feel like, you know, this is kind of resonating because life feels a little bit like Midian right now. I'm in a place further than I would have wanted to be. I'm in a place where my original plan for my life, whatever that looks like, maybe is different. And that doesn't feel good. Just know that you will not be always protected, but you will always be prepared for a life of faithfulness. And my hunch is if you have friends or family members who have left the church, who aren't walking with Jesus anymore, it's, it's maybe because they weren't told this fact growing up. That there's no constant protection for people of faith, but there is provision. And so may we be men and women telling the truth that, you know, gosh, there's going to be great days and there'll be hard times. But God is the God of it all. And we're going to celebrate God when the sun is shining. And we're going to toast our glasses of wine and look into each other's eyes and celebrate well. And, and when, when darkness falls and we make mistakes and we cover it with sin and we end up on the run, we want to hand these places over to God and say, prepare my heart to love you more. May the season end. May, may this farness from you end, God. But may I be being prepared even now. That's the power of the Midian story for us. That we are being prepared to follow God. And it reminds me of, uh, of Paul's story, actually, in Galatians. Paul, we get his story of, of Christ coming and, and saving his life in Acts. We preached about that a couple months ago. But listen to what Paul says in Galatians when he's talking about the power of the gospel in his life. He talks about the power of desert places to shape us. So Paul says in Galatians 1, you have to turn there, I'll read it for you. Galatians 1, verse 11, he says, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for it is neither received from man nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
It's like, all right, well, where does Paul, the great Paul, get his power from Christ? And he continues on, verse 13, Galatians 1. You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond all measure, and I tried to destroy it. But I was advancing in Judaism, verse 15. But when God, who'd set me apart even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, so that I might preach him someday... Then I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away for a while. I went away to Arabia, and I returned once more to Damascus. Paul went where? To the desert places. He went to the desert places to understand all that Jesus wanted to say to him. And scholars say that Paul spent most of nine years in the desert soaking up the word of Jesus Christ. And so these desert places can be places to teach us and shape us and give us more of Christ in our life. But the reality is, in Moses' story, we can't stay in Midian or we risk missing our call. Like Moses, it says here in verse 22 that he was, or verse 21, that Moses was willing to dwell. He was willing to just stay out there. And he made a life out there. But God wasn't done with him yet. And how do we know that? In verse 22, Moses has a son and he names his son Gershom, which means I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. He continues to pray. He continues to know the scriptures. But he continues to know that he's still in a foreign place. So how do we know when to wait in Midian or when to go back and and you speak out for justice or to do hard things or to leave the job or to change relations. You know, how do we know it's a mystery? It is. If I didn't tell you that, I wouldn't be telling you the truth. But the power of Exodus story in Moses' life is that God's not done with him and God will go to the desert to find Moses in the next chapter. He's still speaking to his people. And so if you find yourself in a season where you're like, man, You know, am I supposed to go left or right? Am I supposed to do this or that? Continue to pray. And if you find yourself far from what you thought was your original plan, even in really hard and desperate places, believe that your life can still have profound meaning and profound significance. How do we know that? Because we have people of faith that have modeled this for us well. And back to the story of Viktor Frankl. Frankl is laboring through Auschwitz and through Dachau for almost three years into a final what they called a rest camp, which is ironic. He was not resting. He was trying to survive. And on April 27, 1945, he's freed from his camp. And he goes home years later to find Tilly, the woman that he had hoped upon, upon all hopes was still alive, to find out she had died. Because though Frankl had kept his hope alive and he had written fragments of manuscripts on pieces of paper and he had practiced you know positive self-speak and a hope in a higher being and he he had labored well in his desert place not all things that happen to us in this life are good Frankel knew that more than anyone and so he was plunged into this depth of despair and through the fog of that Midian place that desert place that far from God place he once again found significance And the power of God in his life. And in nine days, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Which to this day has sold over nine million copies. Frankel would remarry. He would have children. He would pursue psychiatry and another doctorate. He would have a life of significance. 
And he would look back on his time through, through the war years and understand that his significance was that much sweeter because of all that he had gone through. It's not fun to be in desert places. It's not fun to make mistakes where we just feel like, you know, there's a lot of sand and I want to... But Franco, above all else, understood that God can use these hard times and these desert places to change us. We won't always be protected, but we can be prepared. And so in conclusion today, I want to just end with a couple verses from the end of Exodus 2. There's this beautiful little aside at the end of Exodus 2 where we've been you know, studying kind of chronologically the life of Moses and then the narrator, who was Moses himself later in life, he writes this in verse 23 and 24 and 25 of Exodus 2. Moses writes this. He says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. They're just kind of taking a break from the other narration and taking a look back on the nation of, of Egypt. That Pharaoh died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their bondage, it rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God saw the sons of Israel, and God took notice of them. It's this beautiful break from Moses in desert places before God goes and gets him in Exodus 3 and speaks to him through the burning bush, where Moses just wants to remind the people of God these three important words, the most important three words in all of Exodus 2, which come at the beginning of verse 24. So God heard. Friends, there is power in your sigh and in your lament and in the way you speak to God and the way you confess sins and the way you labor well because God hears. And then it says that God remembered and then it said that God saw and ultimately it says that God took notice of them and so he went out to Moses in the beginning of chapter 3, he said, Moses, take off your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. And I've got a purpose for you. I'm going to use you. Moses, you thought I was done with you. I'm going to use you. Forty years you've waited to see what's next. But I'm going to use you. I'm going to prepare you to go back and set my people free. And the entire nation was set free because God saw and God heard. And the most staggering thing about that the place where Moses took off his shoes where God said it's holy land, it's in Midian. It's in the desert. It's not our situations that are beautiful. It's God's presence in the middle of our situations. And so wherever you stand this morning, wherever you sit in places of plenty and places of scarcity, places of joy and places of hopelessness, wherever you sit, know that your God he sees you and he has a plan for you and he can redeem all spaces and all relationships. He's not done with you yet. The death of one plan was just the beginning of something beautiful. God sees you. Will you pray with me now? Father God, thank you so much for just a reminder through your scriptures that our mistakes don't define us and we don't need to be living lives, covering things up, looking left and right. Or there's some in the room this morning that need to be reminded of just the strong power of confession and of living right and getting back into a space where we don't need to be running and full of shame and brokenness. And Father, we just pray for your people gathered this morning, no matter 
places of promised land or desert places, Lord, that it would be places where we're trying to be formed more like you, where you're speaking to us and we're able to hear you. You're the God that really sees. You're the God that really listens. You're the God that's not done with us yet. Lord, may we be encouraged. The Moses story may be our story. In your great name we pray, amen.